Welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast, brought to you by TournamentPokerEdge.com, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to poker tournament strategy. Now here's your host, Clayton Fletcher. Once again, everybody, and welcome to the Tournament Poker Edge podcast. I am your host, Clayton Fletcher. So happy to be back with you guys after having missed last week's episode. Uh, big shout out to Mark Alioto and, of course, our fearless leader, Derek Tenbush, for filling in nobly in my stead last week. I was down in Florida playing in a tournament series called the Isle Poker Open. Uh, if anyone has ever been to Pompano Beach, Florida, you know it's one of the most beautiful parts of the United States. Um, I was excited to be there. I had a corporate gig in nearby Fort Lauderdale and decided to stay for an extra week and play a few tournaments, including a $1,100 six max event and the $1,500 main event the Isle Poker Open Championship. Uh, normally when you get an opportunity to play in this type of poker room in the great state of Florida, you look forward to it very much because you typically have a pretty favorable setup as far as your level of competition. I'm trying to say this in the most diplomatically uh, appropriate and acceptable way. Um, uh, Unfortunately, this year, the event coincided with something called the WPT Best Bet Jacksonville Championship. So a lot of the top professionals in the world were already in Florida for the event in Jacksonville, and many of them decided to take the trip down to Pompano and ruin my plans by uh, infiltrating a tournament that I really didn't expect to see anyone that I recognize there. Uh, I'm talking about the likes of Lonnie Harwood and Jeff Trudeau, Chino Ream, and just a host of other professional players that I was not expecting to have as my competition in Florida this time around. Uh, that's no excuse for my results, which were very poor. Uh, the truth is I played my best. Um, I think perhaps next week I'm going to try to get a guest on. It's just going to be me today, guys. I'm sorry I wasn't able to book any of our other regulars. Uh, everyone's busy. Derek's moving. You know, Mark has probably some sobering up to do. I love those guys went to Reno and they didn't even, uh, remember to play poker, but that's another story altogether. Uh, so yeah, it's just going to be you and me. And I hope that's okay with you. By the way, guys, I want to thank everyone who's been sending the love. Uh, we just really appreciate all the positive comments. Uh, those of you who have rated and reviewed the podcast on iTunes and Stitcher and Podbean, it just means a lot. And especially those who have been tweeting me at Clayton Comic, uh, really appreciate all of the uh, words of encouragement and all the love that you guys have been throwing. Uh, as most of you know, I was very nervous about taking over this role as host of this podcast. I know that the TPE community, uh, really very loyal bunch and, and I wasn't sure if I would be welcomed. And I'm so happy to say that I just feel the love from all four corners of the globe. And it just, it means the world to me. So thank you guys for that. So yeah, I do want to review a few of the hands I played in uh, the tournaments. I made day two of the main event down in Florida. It's a three-day event, so uh, I almost got into the money. I definitely recorded a lot of hands. I, I want to talk about them with one of the pros. Uh, hopefully, I can book somebody for next week's episode, and we can review some of the hands that I played in the Isle Poker Open series. Um Today, we're going to continue our discussion of the World Series of Poker main event and the coverage that's been airing of late on ESPN and ESPN2. Talk a little bit about a couple of hands that I observed in watching that. 
before we get into that, I wanted to talk a little bit about the discussion that was uh, in the beginning of last week's episode. I listened to Mark and Derek, and they were talking about people preparing for the World Series of Poker. It occurred to me that some of you might be thinking, it's only November. I mean, are we really already looking at what we're going to be doing in May and June? And perhaps for you, you have the luxury of making your plans much later. Uh, I mean, the schedule hasn't even come out yet. Usually it comes out right around the first of the year. Last year, they kind of dropped a bomb on us a little bit early around this time of, of last year. And there's even one year in recent memory when the World Series schedule didn't come out until almost the end of March. So it varies, to say the least. But for those of you who like to plan early or perhaps need to plan early because you have a maybe a regular job where you need to tell your boss what days you want to get off to go play in the World Series of Poker, whatever the case may be, uh, I think it was great. And we are getting a lot of questions in the forums about the World Series of Poker. If you've never gone, by the way, I recommend, regardless of your bankroll, just go. Uh, I remember maybe 10 years ago, my bankroll was $800. <laughs> yeah, uh, you heard that right, $800. And that was the money I had to play poker with. I had other money for other things, but my poker account was at $800. I'm not going to get into the reasons why it got that low, but that's what it was 10 years ago. And... I decided to go for a week to Vegas and take my $800 and see what I could do. I had no intention of playing in the main event, obviously, and knew that there was a distinct possibility that I wouldn't get to play in any tournaments at all. But many of you may not even realize that 10 years ago, the World Series of Poker was the only option at that time during the summer. Uh, now, if you go to Vegas, there's something at the Golden Nugget. There's something at Planet Hollywood. There's something at the Wynn, the Venetian, the Aria. And players actually, when now when we make our schedules, we have to determine which casino you want to be, where you want to play, uh, what your buy-in levels are going to be. And one thing that a lot of us try to do is figure out who is going to play in which events. So if you know there's a really big uh, high roller going on at one casino, that might be the day to try to win your bracelet, uh, you know, that sort of thing. So we kind of try to be prognosticators in the sense of which field is going to most likely be soft uh, because obviously game selection is uh, essential to anyone who's trying to make a living playing poker. But when it comes to tournaments – you don't get to pick your table, but you can pick your tournament. So I know the guys talked a little bit about how Carlos likes to know where other people are going so that he can go somewhere else. And I really think that's wise. And one of the things that Carlos really has right, your goal should not be to be in a position that I was in last week in Florida, trying to sit at a table with a, a bunch of you know really good, strong, killer professionals. You should be trying to find opportunities to make money so to the extent that game selection is possible in tournament poker you should try to be a good bum hunter for lack of a better word so anyway getting back to my story 10 years ago i had 800 dollars in cash and that was my poker bankroll i bought a week uh, a flight for a week and stayed with a friend. So I did not have to pay for hotels, which uh, I, you know, I want to echo the sentiments expressed last week on the podcast as far as uh, finding cheap housing. I would add, though, that uh, meeting up with other players that are getting a house, you don't have to get the sickest house. You know, I, I've never been to the TPE house, full disclosure, but it seems to me that there's a lot of talk about how sick it is. And, you know, how great the house is and how much it costs and everything. You could find better housing. Uh, I shouldn't say better. I, you could definitely find cheaper housing. And, you know, if you're on a tight budget, you could either crash on somebody's couch like I did that year or maybe just get a, a modest accommodation with a few of your uh, frugal poker playing friends and figure it out how you're going to spend less than the, what did they say it is, $29 a night 
to stay at the Gold Coast, which is, to be very clear, a no-frills casino. What it really has going for it is it is right next door to the Rio. So if your goal is to play satellites or to try to get into the uh, bracelet events, being at the Gold Coast is a very, very good location. But you're not going to have uh, a perfect mattress on your bed. You're not going to have a concierge or anything like that. Uh, so if you're expecting luxury from the Gold Coast, you're in for a big disappointment. So yeah, anyway, that year I stayed on my friend's couch. Um, I had other money that I could use for the flight. So I didn't use the, my poker bankroll to pay for my expenses such as food and travel. And I didn't have to pay for a hotel. And back then there was a really nice small but nice poker room at the Palms Casino, which was within walking distance of where my friend lived. So I took a little stroll over there and I decided to play in whatever the lowest stakes game was. My goal was to try to run my $800 up to maybe 2000 and then use that money to play in satellites to try to win my bracelet. So this was maybe 2007, 2008, and here's Clayton hanging out in Vegas on a very short bankroll, and I go to the Palms Casino. I buy in to a 1-3 game for $200, and this was, I don't know if you guys used to play there. I don't know how many of you remember the poker room at the Palms. They don't have one anymore. This place was amazing. Uh, they had five tables of one, three, no limit, where there was pretty much a straddle in every hand. And a lot of your opponents had just left the nightclub and were now doing tequila shots at the table. So I always bought in short in those games because I knew there was a great chance of getting, you know, a 50 or 60 big blind stack all in <laughs> before the flop against this type of competition, especially because there's always a straddle and there's just a lot of, you know, you have to take yourself back in time and remember what poker used to be like 10 or 12 years ago. So here I am at the Palms and it's my first night playing. I think the first night I just hung out with my friend, maybe grabbed a drink or something like that. So here we are. I'm, I'm trying to get involved. I'm only going to be in town for a week and I'm just trying to get something going. Let's fast forward two hours later. And I'm down to uh, $96 <laughs> total. So I had lost 704 of my 800 bucks. Uh, I was down to my last $96. And if I lost this money, I was going to have five more days in Vegas. And at that time, you know, I wasn't really familiar with anyone who could stake me or lend me money. And I really wasn't comfortable borrowing or lending money to anyone anyway. Kind of always followed the sage advice of William Shakespeare, never a borrower nor a lender be. Uh, so with that in mind, this was literally my last $96 uh, to play for that week. I got up from the table, took a long walk, actually walked all the way to the strip, and just kind of wandered around Vegas thinking, I can't believe this happened. You know, back then I wasn't as aware as I am now about bankroll management and that $800 is not nearly enough to be playing 1-3. <laughs> I probably could have found a 1-2 game at a different casino that would have let me buy in for 60 bucks back then, which would have been the way to go on that kind of bankroll. But the truth of the matter was I was staying right by the Palms I had played at the Palms quite a bit, and I really liked the vibe in there, and uh, the action was basically unbeatable. Not meaning you couldn't beat the game, meaning that you couldn't find better action anywhere in Vegas at the time. So now here I am wandering the strip, trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my last $96, and I called it uh, a day. The next morning, I go back to the Palms, and my friend... Stan, shout out to Stan. I will never forget what he did for me. Uh, I showed up with my $96 and I said, okay, I want to play 1-3. And my goal was 
to just play tight, wait for a good spot, and try to double this money. And then I, my plan after that was uncertain. <laughs> so some plan. Anyway, the minimum buy-in, which I didn't realize, was $100. Now, Stan and I had developed a rapport, shall we say, over the years. And I always liked him. Very stylish guy. Old school Vegas guy. Used to run the, the poker room at the Palms. And he told me that I needed to pay $100 to play. And I said, Stan, this is, this is it. This is my last 96 bucks. And he said, all right, I got you. Reached into his own pocket and added four of Stan's dollars to my 96 to give it 100. Uh, the game, as usual, was golden. Everybody's all in, almost every hand, multiple players going all in. Uh, just really wild, loose, aggressive, maniacal game. Six hours later, I had $2,300 in front of me. I had turned $100 into $2,300 in the course of about six hours. And as Sam was going, Stan was going home for the day, I uh, stopped him. And said, Stan, before you go, cash out my chips, okay? And I really wanted to make sure that Stan would be the one to cash out my chips for me because I wanted to give him a nice tip. <laughs> His $4, he ended up getting a $100 tip from me, which now looking back on it, I think I owed him even more. I used that money to play in $125 satellites, which you could then use to play, these are winner take all satellites. And if you win, you get, at the time, you would get a hundred, uh, you would get a thousand dollars in lammers plus one hundred and twenty dollars in cash. So a 10 player single table, winner take all, sit and go. And I just played a bunch of those with my two thousand dollars. I played in three bracelet events that week i didn't cash in any of them if you look at my hended mob you'll see that i did not cash in the world series of poker back in 2007 at all but i got the experience of playing and i made dinner break in two of those three tournaments now back then uh the world series of poker was structured very differently you received Two times the buy-in. So these were $1,500 bracelet events I was playing. So your $1,500 got you 3000 in chips. And the blinds would start at 25 25 and go up from there. So the whole structure has changed now. You get five times like the buy-in. A couple years ago, it was three times the buy-in. But back then, it used to be uh, the, the chip value that you would get in tournament chips would be two times the dollar value of the buy-in. So... Making dinner break was a little bit harder back then, I think. And the tournaments didn't last as long as they do now. Now, guys, these were the first bracelet events I ever played in my career. So I can't remember whether it was 2007, 2008, but it was around that time. And for me, I was in over my head. You know, I don't recommend what I'm saying. <laughs> this story I'm telling you is it should be considered a cautionary tale uh, I ended up winning, uh, not in the tournaments, but I ended up winning money overall on that trip. I think I went home with $1,200. So I had a week in Vegas and I came home with a $400 profit. But to me, obviously much more importantly was the experience that I gained by playing in these huge field tournaments uh, and just being in the atmosphere of the Rio during the World Series uh, with all of the craziness going on. And back then, you know, there were parties. There was like a full tilt party, a poker stars party. Uh, a year later, I attended the cake poker party. That was my website of choice. Uh, I was almost exclusively on cake poker before Black Friday. And I really liked the, their style, the way they, uh, the way the party was. Uh, everything was, you know, first class. And, it was at the Palms in one of those suites that has a swimming pool that's on a balcony. So you're kind of 
hanging out over the building <laughs> 50 stories high and you're in a swimming pool. That was uh, very memorable for a young and impressionable Clayton Fletcher. So I'm telling you guys this story because I know some of you might be sitting home saying, you know, Vegas in the summer, it just seems like everything is just for ballers only. Uh, with a little bit of luck and maybe a little help from your friends, if you know someone like Stan, uh, you could end up having an experience like I had that that year, which from then on, I've been hooked. I've never missed the World Series of Poker since then. And now I pretty much go there for the whole summer, every summer. Uh, it is something that every poker player should experience. Perhaps every human should experience before they die because there's literally nothing on earth quite like it. Now it's changed a little bit in that th all the players are spread out throughout the city as other casinos started to realize that uh, there's a lot of money to be made by getting these poker players in the door. Uh, so now we have a, a lot more places to go. We all used to just spend the whole summer at the Rio, believe it or not. But that's how things were. And I hope that you enjoyed my little story. Uh, by the way, I got to play with some top pros. I played against Phil Ivey um, in one of those tournaments. Uh, I played against Chris Ferguson in one of those tournaments. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of, uh, you know, for me, having watched these people on TV, uh, it was kind of special. Now, if I sit with Chris Ferguson, he's going to get a piece of my mind. But back then, I didn't know any better. So if you're thinking about joining us, uh, in the summer of 2019 in Vegas, I hope that I've convinced you that it's a good idea. You'll have a great time. It's summer camp for poker players. You'll see people that, uh, you might not see very often and, and you start to develop your own group of friends. Obviously the TPE community gets together. They have the big meetup and it's a lot of fun. So you definitely want to come. So if you're, if you're on the fence, let me push you on the right side of the fence and get your butt to Las Vegas next summer. Okay, so I want to talk about a couple of hands from the Day 7 coverage recently seen on ESPN, ESPN2, and the like. Uh, this hand comes from the 200K, 400K level. There's a 50K ante. There are only 18 players remaining in the tournament. So we're down to the final two tables on day seven of the main event. So uh, this first hand I want to talk about is a player with whom, I, you know, candidly, I was not impressed. Uh, his name was Ryan Fan. Seemed like a nice guy. I think we talked about him on a previous episode. So I'm not, I'm not making any comments about Ryan personally, you know, he seemed very well uh, comported at the table. I liked the way he interacted with his uh, opponents. I didn't have a problem with him personally, uh, but I just thought that some of his plays that he made, at least the ones they showed on TV, uh, I disagreed with some of his choices and some of his decisions. So I'm only talking about his poker strategy. So for example, in this hand, he's got 22 million. So that means he's got, what is that, 54? If my math is correct, he has 54 big blinds. And his M is right around 21. So he's under the gun at a nine-handed full table with the eight, seven of spades. Uh, all right, so what should you do with this hand? Well, to me, with this stack size... You can choose to play this hand if you want to, and obviously you want to bring it in for a raise if so. Uh, you could put this hand in your limp re-raising range. Nowadays, when a player limps under the gun, most of us uh, start thinking, well, he's probably up to no good. You know, it just It's very suspicious, especially if the player otherwise seems to be capable that it could be a limp with the intention of back raising, as we call it. So I like this hand. If you're, if you're going to have, if you'd like to do that sometimes with your aces and kings, I like to put maybe my black eight, seven suiteds in there or 
you know, it's just some a couple of combinations just to balance that range a little bit. You don't want to always have aces and kings when you limp and re-raise uh, under the gun. So I think this is a nice hand to put into that range if you want to construct a range uh, to do that with. Uh, you can also just open raise with it. But I think you put yourself in an awkward spot unless you really feel like you have unbelievable control of your table, which I didn't get the sense that Ryan Pham did. Uh, I didn't think he, he was in control of his table at all. In fact, he seemed like a guy that was enjoying his experience of playing against uh, you know high-quality competition, and he was trying to make the best of it. And I think for all those reasons, he probably should just fold the 8-7 of spades from you know first position. But he chooses to raise. He opens to 900. I don't have a problem with his sizing here at all. Um, two to his left is John Sin, who uh, I had the honor of uh, having at my table for much of day five and all of day six. Uh, I can tell you that John Sin, who most of you know is is our current world champion, is a very capable player. He doesn't strike a ton of fear into you. Uh, partly his demeanor, partly just the fact that he kind of stays out of the way a lot. But in the pots where he does get involved, he is a very thoughtful and very difficult opponent. So he three bets to 2.6 million. So again, Ryan Pham opens under the gun with the 8-7 of spades with 22 million behind. He raised it to 900K, one fold, and then John Sin, under the gun plus two, a.k.a. third position, makes it 2.6 million. Everyone folds back to Ryan Fan. So I'm sure most of you who haven't watched the coverage are thinking, well, Clayton, why are we talking about this hand? Obviously, Ryan is just going to fold and we'll get on with our lives. That hand should be over. Uh not so fast because Ryan decides to four bet and makes it seven million. All right, so let's let's break this down. I think four betting with this hand is okay, but I wouldn't do it. I think the reason I don't like it is because he doesn't have any blockers to the value hands that Sin should be three betting with. Sin's never going to have an 8 or a 7 in his hand when he 3 bets from 3rd position. So, I think the fact that John Sin is in early position makes this a, a very easy fold. I think, you know what, I tried to get aggressive under the gun with my suited connector. Somebody else in early position has clearly woken up with something. Like th There's very, very little chance that John Sin is going to show a bluff having three bet from third position at a full table with 18 players left in the main event. So his range is going to be value. I think that his three betting range from this spot is probably going to be um, pairs above jacks and ace-king, and that's it. I mean, I think he would just flat with ace-queen suited. I think that he would just, you know, probably should just call with jacks here and he shouldn't have many bluffs at all. So given all that, I think that four betting at all is a bad idea. Um now some of you might be thinking, but Clayton, you just said that you could put eight seven of spades into your limp re raising range. And that it's very simple. I feel like uh, when you limp under the gun with the 8-7 of spades, there are a lot more hands that should be raising, putting in the first raise, than those that can re-raise an opening raise. So if I hope I'm being clear, but what I mean is uh, in John Sin's shoes with an ace-jack, many of us would raise. So the undergun player limps 
and I have a playable hand, ace-jack, and I want to raise it because I feel like his limping range might not just be uh, trapping with giant pairs. So you can get that raise from ace-jack and then maybe a call from the button or something, and then you can put in the uh, three-bet with the eight-seven of spades and get some folds. Because they'll put you on aces almost every time. I don't mind that play. But when you choose to open raise and then you get three bet, the eight seven really just needs to go into the muck. So I really don't like this four bet at all because I just feel like John Sin is almost always raising with a value hand and a very strong one at that because he's still in early position himself. I mean, I guess at a nine handed table, you could say third position is middle early middle position but you know whatever you want to call it he's nowhere near the button put it that way so if you must four bet this hand which again i don't think you should do i really hate this over bet to seven million now come on clayton that's not an over bet it's not even three times the raise so sin had made it 2.6 million and now fan makes it seven million and your humble host is now calling that an over bet and the reason why I say that is because what does 7 million do for you that 6 million doesn't? Or even 5.8? You know, if you're just trying to rep this huge hand, I think a smaller 4-bet would do the trick. But again, I don't like 4-betting at all. But I feel like he made two mistakes by 4-betting at all and then also by 4-betting to such a large uh, size. So he only starts with 22 million. So now... He has put in 7 million of his 22 million and the uh, action is on Sin who 5 bets to 13.5 million and Fam has to fold. Uh, I actually think you can make a case for calling with the 8-7 of spades if you open to 900 Okay, and then your opponent makes it 2.6 and everyone folds. You're getting almost three and a half to one on a call. And you have a suited connector, which is actually, this hand is the best hand to have against pocket aces, to be honest. Uh, you know, statistically, just in terms of pure equity, the 8-7 of spades is the best hand any any suited eight seven obviously is is the best hand to go up against the big pair with uh you are about a three to one underdog to beat the aces with this hand and that's the price you're getting i mean i'm not saying i would do that i probably would just have folded this hand at this table under the gun if i could be ryan fam but given the opportunity to just call which you can probably do semi-profitably, even though you're going to have to play the rest of the hand out of position, it's a pretty easy hand to play because you're either going to flop a lot of equity or you're not. And say it comes something like jack 7-7. Seven, seven. If Sin has two aces or two kings, he's probably going to lose a lot of chips to you, maybe even double you up. By the way, Sin does have us covered here. He's got $40 million. At this time. So, uh, yeah, he could definitely afford it. Now, you guys who have been listening uh, to me on this podcast and other podcasts, you know I like to be creative myself. I take some unusual lines. I like uh, putting pressure on my opponents and finding opportunities to be creative. Uh, I just don't feel like this is a good spot for fam. And I'm sure he regrets it, too. Uh, because obviously you did have to fold his hand once the five bet went in. Uh, I really think, though, that you have to think about the, you, you know, it, poker's all about measuring risk and reward. So here I am with 18 players left in the tournament. Uh, my shot at making the final table is basically on the line. And I have over 50 big blinds. So there's really no reason for me to get too creative or go too crazy especially from early position, especially at a full table that also includes some pretty good players left. So I think just folding this hand under the gun is the way to go. If you want to open it and then fold to the three bet, that's totally fine with me. 
I think it's defensible to open it and then call this smallish three bet uh, because, you know, the reasons I just outlined. But I think that four betting with this hand is just taking it a little too far. It just feels to me like you didn't really think about what your opponent is representing and not only what he's representing, but what he's most likely to have. Do we really think that John Sin in third position just made a decision to bluff raise somebody who raised under the gun? I just don't think that that's really part of a big part of his repertoire. And especially at this stage of this tournament, it's just a big mistake. Okay, so I want to move on to another hand. By the way, I can't remember if I told you guys already, but Johnson had pocket kings in the previous hand. So exactly what he's supposed to have uh, given his line. Uh, yeah, so let's move on. Uh, about an hour later, there are now 16 players left in the main event. And so there are two eight-handed tables. We're still at that 200K, 400K uh, with a 50K ante level. And this hand, I want to talk about the play of Antoine Labat, who, if his name is familiar, it's because he made uh, one of the November 9 final tables. I think it may have been five years ago. Uh, so he's a, obviously a very accomplished player. It's very difficult to get this deep in the main event twice. And uh, he, you know, he knows what he's doing. So far be it for uh, little old me to criticize him, but I'm about to anyway. Uh, maybe some of you guys can tell me why you think he played the hand in the way that he does. Uh, everybody folds to Antoine Labat on the button, holding queen of spades, six of spades. He's got 40 million in chips. And so he's got 100 big blinds. Again, it's 200K, 400K with a 50K ante. Uh, he decides to call. All right, now I've been seeing this a lot in the last couple of years in tournament poker. I don't really mind having a calling range, especially because, you know, we're relatively deep, 100 big blinds, uh, M of 40, whatever, however you want to put it. We have chips. Um, maybe taking a cautious approach due to the uh, pay jump that's coming up. Once it gets down to, I think, 21 players, they start doing pay jumps at every three bust outs, and those pay jumps obviously are substantial given that it's a $10,000 buy-in with 8,000 players in it. Uh, so that might have part of, uh, that might par partially explain why Antoine takes this line. But he decides to just go ahead and limp in on the button with the queen six of spades. I think, I'm not a fan of, I, I don't mind limping with some of, of my hands, but I don't think that this is a good hand uh, to use. Now let's just talk about the limping strategy in the first place. Because he's deep and because his opponents in the blinds uh, are also deep, relatively speaking, I think John Sin has about $26 million and the and he's in the small blind. And then next to Sin is uh, another player with uh, Serbian, I think a Serbian player, and he has only $12 million behind. So that could also be a reason why Antoine decides to limp because he wants to be able to fold if the big blind decides to make a move here. But if that's the case, then maybe we should just be folding in the first place. I don't like limping in and then having to fold a hand that has some amount of equity that's very hard to determine. I feel like a big part of my strategy when I play is to try to give my opponents the tough decisions. I don't want to be the one doing the guesswork. I would like my my opponents to be doing the guesswork. So I'm, I strongly prefer just raising this hand. If it folds to me on the button and I have uh, these opponents and I make it 900K and then Johnson folds and the Serbian player shoves or re-raises at all, I mean, I only have a queen six. I can easily fold it and just get on with my life. I don't think it's that big a deal. By limping in, I guess he's hoping to be able to play a pot in position even if one of his opponents does raise, but then I don't think this hand is strong enough to do so. Now, if you do limp in with any hands, you have to include some very strong hands in your limping range. So perhaps Antoine would like to be able to uh, occasionally limp in with aces here on the button or 
ace king or some other hand that can then get aggressive when his opponents uh, choose to raise. That's totally fine. But we all have to make sure that we do literally include some of those hands in our ranges so that it's not too easy uh, to to beat us. So anyway, I'm not a fan of this play, but he limps in. I would do this myself with like uh, maybe like a jack 10 of spades. Um, maybe the eight, seven of spades from the uh, previous hand, perhaps even, you know, obviously I uh, throw in once in a while, pocket aces, pocket Kings, ace King type of hand, and maybe some other small pairs where what we're looking to do is limp in, see a cheap flop, maybe flop a set. It'd be very well disguised. Maybe, uh, be able to limp in and even handle a modest size raise going for the, uh, uh, what do we call it nowadays? Uh, set mining equity which is fine like maybe with like pocket threes or something like that but i just don't think you flop that well with queen six of spades and i think that it's uh it's totally fine to just take a hand like this and throw it away put it in the muck and let the blinds battle it out you can sit back and watch them bust each other and then have another pay jump that's always fun too anyway i'd love to be able to interview labat about why he chose to limp in with this hand and what other hands would be in his limping range in this situation uh Johnson completes for 200 more, and our big blind player checks. So we see a flop three ways, and there's 1.6 million in the pot. The flop is queen of hearts, eight of diamonds, deuce of hearts. So queen eight deuce with two hearts, and their small blind, Johnson, leads right out for 625 into the 1.6 million pot and the big blind folds so now i'm not going to tell you sin's hand until the end but let's just put ourselves in labat's shoes now i've limped in with this suited queen and i flopped top pair against the blinds and now i have one of the blinds betting into me it seems like a pretty great situation for labat but let's try to put John Sin on a range. In my experience, guys, and you can argue with me if you want, but in my experience, typically players who lead out uh, after action like the pre-flop action was from the small blind usually have a draw. Most players don't balance their leading range in these situations. I'm not saying that John Sin is most players. He's obviously not. But... In Labat's shoes, I would assume that my pair of queens is best. So then we need to talk about if he's most likely got a draw or he could even have something like an 8-6. Uh, there's so many hands he can complete for 200k more pre-flop. It's kind of hard to narrow his range. I think he could certainly have middle pair. He could have a queen himself. It's unlikely because we know about the location of two of the queens already. Uh, I don't think he would necessarily do this with a deuce in his hand. So I guess my best guess about his range is like any flush draw and probably a few gut shots too. Maybe like a jack nine, uh, jack ten, ten. Yeah, something like that. Yeah I, yeah, I think those are probably the most likely uh, straight draws that could be in there. Uh, but all in all, I think that my range with my pair of queens with a six kicker is much stronger than my opponent's leading range. And now that the big blind has gotten out of my way, I really like this situation. So the question becomes, should I raise or should I call? Well, the problem with limping with the queen six of spades is that we now have top pair and still don't know where we stand. So I think that's why Antoine Labat decides to just call the 625. So I don't like this. I think in Antoine's shoes, I would have raised to something like 2.3 million, a big bet. Uh, to hopefully end the hand, but to also charge Johnson to see any more cards. If he has some kind of flush draw, uh, if he has even like an 8-9 or 8-7, these are hands that have decent equity 
against my top pair, no kicker. So I would prefer, you know, charging him for that. Maybe he'll throw away his 8-7, which, I mean, I suppose we want him to call, but I don't really mind if he folds because there's a lot more value in playing your hands decisively in the late stages of a tournament and not putting your, your stack in jeopardy, or in this case, a large percentage of your stack in jeopardy. And there's a lot more value in that than there is in a cash game when it's really just about making EV plays, plus EV plays. So with all that in mind, I'm not crazy about the flat, but I think it's defensible, especially if Labatt is uh, planning to be more aggressive on the turn. Which, yeah, that's defensible, but I still don't like it because the fact of the matter is we have a range advantage now, but we have very little chance of improving on future streets. So now, while my range is so much stronger than my opponent's leading for 625 into 1.6 range, now is the time to raise here on the flop and start to build the pot. And then I'll be in position on future streets if I don't like the turn card Say it's an overcard or, or some there's some reason why I don't like the turn card. Another eight wouldn't be too welcome. Any heart wouldn't be too welcome. Then if John checks to the razor, we can play pot control at that point. But by calling, we don't really seize the moment and take control of the hand. And we allow John Sin, who seems to be trying to see a cheap turn card, to see a cheap turn card. I mean, a big part of what I try to do at the table is figure out what my opponent would like me to do and then go out of my way to disappoint him. <laughs> so uh, I don't think that Antoine Labat does that here. The Frenchman plays it passively and just calls the 625. So now the turn comes and it's the Jack of Diamonds. There's 2.85 million in the pot and our small blind, John Sin, Bets small again, this time 1 million exactly. So he bets 1 million into 2.85 million. So here in Labatt's shoes, let's try to ask ourselves, what kind of hand bets small twice in this situation? There are 16 players left in the main event. We're all sensing that the final table is near. If Johnson has a strong hand that he wants to protect, he should be betting bigger. If he has a draw, then we should be raising him to deny him the cheap price that he's trying to get. Uh, personally, I think I mentioned this a few weeks ago. I like to lead sometimes with my sets, especially on a draw-heavy board like this one. I mean, it's not a ridiculously draw-heavy board, but there are a, a number of draws available, right, including gut shots. I like to lead my sets on those boards because I do find that most opponents will put you on a draw, and it's nice to have a set when they think you have a draw, obviously, for a myriad of reasons. Uh, but all things being equal, I think that Labatt really needs to take control of this hand now. That turn card is the Jack of Diamonds. So our board is... Queen of hearts, eight of diamonds, deuce of hearts, jack of diamonds. So now there are two available flush draws. And now the board is getting uglier for hands that might have equity, such as, say, uh, nine, seven of hearts, now has a straight draw to go with his flush draw. Uh, all those hands that have uh, some kind of pure flush equity on the flop now have picked up a straight draw on the turn. Another reason to raise is because you might even be able to get value from a jack. So if John Sin is holding something like the jack 10 of hearts, now he just picked up a pair of jacks to go along with his flush draw and would probably call a really good sized raise in this spot with one card to come, the queen six is still well ahead of that hand, even though that hand has a good amount of equity. So I feel like Antoine needs to be aggressive now. He, he limped in pre-flop. 
He just called on the flop, and now it's time to spring the trap and say, aha, I have the hand. Uh, Labatt just calls the one million. Now, what is the case for doing so? Well, you're getting 3.85 to 1, literally, on a call. So your pair of queens only has to be good that often, you know, less than 20% of the time. No, sorry, a little more than 20% of the time, which, of course, a pair of queens will be good that often in this spot. So calling is more attractive than folding, but I still think that raising is the way to go in this situation. And I feel like the call just gives, it plays into your opponent's hands too much. I don't know if Labatt is trying to trap or if he's just concerned that his hand is no good. I think either way, he needs to raise because calling just doesn't accomplish enough. How many more cards do we want to see? We've got just one pair, no kicker. And this board now has two flush draws and all kinds of straight possibilities. So I really don't like calling here, but that's what Labatt does. And then the river is the 10 of diamonds for a final board of queen, eight, deuce, jack, 10 with three diamonds. Now, okay, it's at least it's not a heart, right? Uh, if... If Sin just made a flush, then it was the backdoor type of flush. Uh, certainly there are a lot of hands in Sin's range that have now made a flush with this Ten of Diamonds. But the real problem is he has so many nines in his range that he just made a straight with all of those hands. And it's just really not a good card. And kind of it helps me emphasize the importance of seizing control of the hand. I mean, in most hands we play, at some point we should take an aggressive action. Obviously, there are exceptions when you're trapping an aggressive opponent, when you're trying to keep the pot as small as possible, so you just want to check and hope your opponent doesn't bet. I'm not saying you should always be aggressive every time you play poker. But I feel like with the amount of pure equity we have range versus range on the flop combined with the vulnerability of our hand giving the increasingly draw heaviness of the board as each street goes by. I really feel like Labatt made a huge mistake by never being aggressive at any point during this hand. So on this river card, Johnson bets 3.2 million into the 4.85 million pot and I don't think Labatt has any choice but to fold. I mean, if you're good enough to pull the trigger on a bluff when it's that draw heavy out there and you're willing to bluff this amount, I think you just win the pot. I'm not going to call you with the queen. And to Labatt's credit, he did fold. So uh, I want to reveal the hand now. Uh, John Sin was holding the nine of hearts and five of hearts. So he played his hand, in my opinion, pretty face up. You know, he, he made a blocking bet on the flop to try to get a good price to see another card. Uh, whether that card ends up being a heart or one of the many possible, uh, cards that can come and give us a, a, a backdoor straight draw. Uh, it's just a, Pretty face-up play, in my opinion. I would put him on this type of hand when he leads out for 625 like that. Uh, the turn card was pretty ugly, and that might account for uh, Labatt's reluctance to be aggressive. Perhaps on a safer turn card, Labatt would have sprung a trap, but then he froze up with 16 players left in the main event. I don't want to end up doing something really stupid, uh, especially on TV, when this is my chance. I have a good size stack. But if that's all true, then why did you limp in in the first place? Why not just try to steal the blinds with this hand and get on with your life without worrying about whether things are going to come ugly? Like, what kind of flop do you want with the queen six of spades? You got a queen high flop, and you still didn't feel comfortable with your hand. Uh, the jack on the turn was an ugly card. But still, most times, when that card hits, 
my pair of queens is going to be best. So, therefore, playing aggressively and denying equity to my opponent who probably just picked up some is the right play. And then the river, you know, you really don't have nothing. We have nothing to talk about on the river. Uh, I think when Sin bets that large amount, 3.2 into 4.85, he's just thinking, I hope that my opponent has been slow playing a set or uh, some other strong hand, maybe two pair that would make a curious call. And But, you know, Sin has shown so much strength throughout the hand. I just feel that it's hard for him to get action from much of Antoine's range. So perhaps Sin should bet smaller, but I can't really blame him for trying to make it look bluffy or whatever else may have been his reasoning. So guys, that's going to do it for this episode. I hope that you've enjoyed uh, our discussion of why you should go to the World Series of Poker, even if you only have $800 to your name, (laughs) as well as a couple of hands from very, very late in the world's most prestigious poker tournament, uh, which I hope to play again with you next year. So guys, again, please do like and rate and review and all that stuff that every podcast host in the world asks you to do. I'm asking you to do as well. Feel free to tweet your questions, comments, and opinions at Clayton Comic. And uh, you can also tag uh, Tournament Poker Edge as well. I hope that you are enjoying this content as much as we are enjoying bringing it to you. Uh, For next week, I'm hoping to review a couple of my hands from the tournaments that I just played in Florida uh, with one of our TPE pros to be named at a later date. I feel like a baseball general manager, a player to be named later. (laughs) Well, I'm I'm in touch with all the guys from TPE, and I'm hoping that uh, one of them will be available to chat with me next week about some of those Florida hands. So for everyone here at Tournament Poker Edge, thank you so much for listening. I'm Clayton Fletcher.